Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the members, one of your members, than that your whole body go into hell. Father, we ask for your grace this morning. Um, Father, we ask for your grace for our town, our community, our, our county, our, our region. Father, we, we pray for rain. God, we pray for you to send showers. God, that is something that you've told us to pray for. Uh, we see people praying for that in the Bible. Um, Father, we see that when it doesn't come, you're trying to get our attention. And so, Father, you, you have it. And, and God, we, we submit ourselves to you. We realize that there are so many things that we just have zero control over that we cannot, with all of our, our technology and intelligence and education, we, we can't do anything about. And so, Father, we need you to bring rain to our land. And God, with that rain, Father, we pray that you would bring a sweeping revival. God, we pray that you would stir hearts in dependence upon you. Stir hearts, Father, to look to you for the first time or to look to you again and again. Father, we pray that you would stir hearts to turn away from idols and sin and to embrace you as the greatest treasure. God, bring that in us. Bring that in our town. God, let us be a part of that. Stir our hearts to ask relentlessly for it. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to review the context that we're in, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is describing for us maybe what could be called the righteousness of the kingdom of God, right? And so in verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus tells us, hey, I'm, I'm not adding, I'm not changing the law. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in other words, Jesus is not taking away, he's not taking the Old Testament and saying, ah, that was wrong, I'm gonna give you a, a new ethic here, a new, no, no, there, there's no new righteousness. This is God's righteousness righteousness all along. Jesus is filling it up. He's filling it full. He's, he's explaining it more thoroughly. Why? Because, because people like the scribes and Pharisees had really kind of messed it up, all right? So verse 20 in chapter 5, Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so what was happening here was, is what happens still today, actually, is that it's what people do when they try to be righteous without Jesus, okay? So if you try to be righteous without Jesus, then what you're going to do is you're going to tweak the rules, right? You're, you're, you're going you're gonna to tweak them so that you pass, so that, so that you make it through, you know? So, I mean, it's just human nature to do that, right? So if the, if the speed limit is 65, what, what do we all pretty much say in our, our mind? Well, 65 really means 67, right? I mean, you know, 68 is, I mean, we're close enough there. The speedometer might be off a little. You know, the police, you know, they're, they're not going to pick you up for 67, you know, and, and then what happens? Well, you got somebody that says that, but then you got another person that says, well, you know, it's 65, but really 70, you know, or really 70, right? I mean, we're, that's, that's kind of built into us to want to do that. We want to try to kind 
kind of bend the rules. This is a dumb rule. This rule really should mean this way, right? We would kind of tweak things so that so that we pass, and then we like to appoint other rules so that so that we look better than others, and then voila, you've got your own righteousness, right? That's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. They, they, were, they were taking the law of God and they were tweaking it, okay? In this case, they were minimizing it. So last week, the scribes and the Pharisees said, well, well God's righteous standard as far as the sixth commandment is, you shouldn't kill. And, and all that means is the act of murder, right? So they, they said, as long as we have not murdered anybody, as long as we're not poisoned, killed, bludgeoned, you know, drowned anybody, then we're righteous. So it, it didn't matter to them that they were maybe angry or bitter or hateful or vengeful or slanderous or quarrelsome. It didn't matter that they had this seething hatred in their heart for people. That didn't matter because they were taking God's law to, to, the, to the most minimalist point and saying, well, it says don't kill. So as long as you haven't killed anybody, then that's all that matters. But Jesus shows us that God is concerned with your heart, right? That, that, that this line that we made last week, that it ends with murder, but it begins with anger. And, and, and so, so even if you get on this line and you've got this anger in your heart that you won't let go and it's just simmering and, and, and seething inside of you, God is saying you have a murderous heart. You have sinned in your heart. Your heart is not loving toward people. You are breaking God's commands. You're not loving people. You're not loving God. And, and, and you're sinning against him. And so Jesus shows us that God's standard includes the heart and the motives, and so today he goes to the next commandment. Jesus, this is his next illustration. He says in verse 27, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All right, now again, what were the scribes and the Pharisees saying about that? Well, they were saying, well, as long as you've not had sexual relationships with somebody else's spouse. In fact, I, I can't prove this, but a lot of commentaries believe that they meant just only a Jewish brother's spouse, you know? They were like applying it to the most minimalist way possible. But, but in their mind, if you could be flirtatious or you can engage in sexual fantasies in your mind or you could sexually harass somebody or you could be addicted to pornography and you could still be righteous. Why? Because you had not committed adultery. And Jesus says, again, you, you are missing God's standard of righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, God is saying, this is what a righteous person looks like. This is the righteousness of the kingdom. And so in verse 28, Jesus fills full the law. So he takes the commandment and he says, man, you, you, you're you not seeing it correctly and he, and he fills it full. He says in verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, now the fact that there's more to this command than just adultery should have been obvious. It should have been obvious because the 10th commandment, you guys remember that in, in, in Exodus 20? So they're, they're quoting the, the 7th commandment uh, that you shall not commit adultery. But the 10th commandment says uh, in verse 17 of chapter 20 of Exodus, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then he goes on and lists a whole bunch of other things. And so it should have been evident that there's more to it than just a sexual relationship with somebody else's spouse that God intends to look at your heart. And, and, and so if, again, if we use our, our line illustration and, and if, if the end of the line there is, adult, or is adultery, if that's the end, well, the beginning of the line is, is lust, right? Now let's try to define lust. Lust is not a casual glance at someone in which you realize they have attractive features, okay? That, that's actually not lust. Um, that's just... 
recognizing beauty, I guess we could say. Uh, and the Bible does that. I, the Bible doesn't condemn that. In fact, it, it does it itself. Um, if you read through the book of Genesis, there, there's several women that it says these were attractive women. You know, it says Sarah was an attractive woman. It said Rebecca was an attractive woman. It said um, uh, Rachel, I think it was, said she, she was an attractive woman. So that's not lust. Lust is rather the intentional looking with the intent of feeding your sensual appetite. It it is looking and looking again, continuing to look with the intent of inner gratification. It is using the image of someone, not your spouse, to satisfy your sexual desire. And Jesus says that is where adultery begins. That is adultery in the heart. Whenever someone commits adultery, the realization, the reality is, is that they've had adultery in their heart a long time before that ever happened. So before the ever before the act was committed, it began here with a wrong kind of heart. And Jesus is saying the righteousness of the kingdom begins with the heart. And so if if it ends in adultery then it begins with with lust. It begins with, and and if it continues from there, then it progresses toward maybe compulsive looking or addictive looking or flirting or fantasizing or pornography or pursuing a planned sexual encounter all the way to adultery. And so last week, Jesus said, if you've ever been selfishly angry, if you've harbored anger in your heart, then you've broken the sixth commandment. Today, he says, if you've ever lusted after someone who's not your spouse, then you've broken the seventh commandment. All right, now, now you can see where Jesus is going here, right? You're broken. I'm broken. We're sinners, right? We're, we're sinners, and we cannot have a righteousness of our own. Like, the way to fix that is not to tweak the rules, you know? It's not to say, well, you know, I, I, that whole lust deal, really, it's if you look for 20 seconds or more, you know? And then the rest of your life, you like have this little stopwatch, you know, and you get to 19 seconds and look away, you know, and then you go back, you know, I got another 19 seconds, you know, See, that, that's silliness, okay, that, that's, that's man-made righteousness, that's what, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. We are lawbreakers, we are transgressors, and we are in desperate need of a Savior. That's the message of the Bible. You, you can't save yourself. The, the only means of salvation is Jesus Christ, perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection. And so we need a righteousness, not our own. We need the righteousness of Jesus. We need to turn to him in faith and embrace all that he is as the greatest treasure so that his righteousness comes into our account. And then we need to live by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you, you turn in faith to Jesus and then you live by faith the rest of your life. And as you live by faith, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to be transformed to have a heart righteousness that will transform both your actions and your desires and your thoughts and your attitudes. Okay, so, so this morning we are, just like last week, we, we aimed at a heart righteousness in anger, right? And so, so we, we talked about, you know, the, 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 the application last week was once you get on this line of anger, you have to immediately, quickly, you realize you're a sinner. You realize you're breaking God's law. You realize you, you are offending the, the God who loves you. And so you quickly move toward reconciliation. You quickly move toward forgiveness. You quickly move to the cross. All right, so today... If you realize you're on this line of lust, you're on this line of wanting, looking, 
fantasizing, desiring what you should not, having thoughts in your mind and in your heart that you should not have, then now we need to quickly move toward a heart righteousness by faith in Jesus. Okay? So first of all, here's maybe the path to a heart righteousness. So first of all, Number one, we need to learn about sex from the God who created it, not from the world who soils it, okay? We should learn about sex from the God who created it and not from the world who soils it. You know, what's amazing is the Bible tells us a bunch of things about sex. Um, It is God's creative plan for one man and one woman in the confines of the covenant of lifelong marriage. Sex is God's gift to covenant marriage. Uh, it, it is actually God's celebration of covenant marriage. It, it, you know, God comes to every wedding. The Bible tells us that. In, in, in Matthew 19, it says, you know, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, God does something in every marital union. Every time a man and a woman join together in the covenant of marriage, God does something. He is there. He is present. And the gift that he brings to the wedding is this gift that he has created in the sexual relationship. And the purpose of it is to serve the marriage. It is to strengthen and bless and edify and delight the covenant of marriage. It is designed to be intimacy producing. To increase the emotional, physical, and spiritual closeness of the marriage. In fact, the Old Testament word that's very common in the Old Testament for the sexual relationship is to know. So, so in Genesis 4, 1, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And, and, and then in, uh, in the next page, it says Cain. If I could get to the next page. There we go. Nope, still not there. There we go. It says Cain knew his wife. And, and again, in verse in 25, chapter 4, 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. And so it's obvious that the Bible is describing the, the sexual relationship in this knowledge way, in this intimate relational way. All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible uses marriage as a metaphor for the relationship that Jesus intends to have with the church. In fact, it's, it's almost clear from Ephesians 5 that God created marriage so that we would understand more about Jesus and the church. Like that, that's the purpose of marriage is to image forth Christ in the church. All through the Old Testament, adultery is used as a metaphor for idolatry. In other words, whenever God's people worship other things, God says that is just like adultery in the marriage relationship. The sexual relationship of a husband and a wife is celebrated in the book of Proverbs. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called The Song of Solomon that is dedicated to romantic marital love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, there's this, there's this really strange passage in which, which Paul com- commands the husband and the wife not to deprive one another from a sexual relationship other than for a season of prayer is his only time. And he says, rather that... that that the sexual relationship might be a means of fighting against the temptation of the devil. And so the Bible says lots about it. Okay, there's, there's lots about it. And so it's a horrific tragedy when people develop their view of the sexual relationship from Hollywood and not from the Bible. 
It is a tragedy when a group of middle schoolers get together in the lunchroom and that is, that is the education they have about the sexual relationship. That is a tragedy. If your idea of romantic love is formed by watching The Bachelor, you have zero accurate knowledge about sex. Like you, you don't know anything. Nothing. Nothing, nothing right. The, the only means by which a show like The Bachelor maybe could, could be productive in your life is if you could just do the opposite. Like, like whatever they do, like just go completely the opposite. Like just, just go the other way. Like as far as you go the other way, and then you might actually be in the realm of maybe accuracy a little bit, you know? So he's going to like test drive 20 gals, flirt. They offer themselves sexually to him. Okay, do the opposite of that, right? That may, like it, 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 I know it seems ridiculous, but I talk to professing Christians all the time who talk about sex as if they learned it from the Kardashians. Like, like, what is wrong with this church? I, I hear Christian people talk about sex as if it's dirty recreation. As if it's selfish gratification of flesh desire. Who told you that? I mean, that's what I, I want to ask. I've had ladies in my office say, well, you know, it's, it's dirty. I'm like, who told you that? Like, like, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Well, if, if you learned everything from, from television, okay, it, I, man, I guess, I mean, that, that makes sense because it's all distorted, twisted, polluted, and violated. I mean, it's just, it's just, the saint has taken this gift and he's just sludged it through the mud and polluted it and trashed it and then offered it back and people are like, well, that's what it is. No. It is, it is created by God as a servant to the marriage relationship. That is God's standard of righteousness. And when sex is stolen away, from one man, one woman, covenant, covenant relationship, it is sin. It is selfishly seeking to gratify your own desires without a covenant commitment of love and care for and provision for a person for a lifetime. God, God intends for a man and a woman to come and say, I will, I will be for you forever. And I, I, and I will take care of you no matter what, in sickness and in health, no matter what may come. I, I will care for you and I will love you and I will raise a family with you and we will be one together. And in that context is God's gift. But sexual immorality does the other. It doesn't seek the welfare of the person. It doesn't seek their best. It's saying, I, I, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do all that. I'm not going to commit to all that other stuff anyway. But I want this. I, I, I want my own personal gratification. It, it certainly doesn't seek the welfare of the other person because it drags them into sin. Listen, any time you jeopardize somebody's eternity, any time you drag them into sin, you're not seeking their welfare. Sexual morality dishonors God. It is unbelief. Let's talk for just a little bit about temptation. So let's talk about the temptation to lust, the temptation to sexual morality. 
Um, in, in Genesis 3, we have one of the clearest passages in the Bible about temptations, the first temptation. And, and, and I want you to think just, just in general about how that goes, right? So God gives, first of all, God gives Adam and Eve a wonderful gift, right? It is the garden, right? It is, it is everything they need. So God, God, God gives this incredible gift of a new world, the garden, paradise, relationship. He walks with them. So God gives this to Adam and Eve. And they walk in harmony with God and with one another, and they have everything they need. And then here comes the tempter, okay? And what does the tempter do? The tempter tries to convince them that God is withholding something from them. That, that's, that's, man, that's, that is the strategy of temptation. The tempter comes and says, you mean that God won't let you do this? You mean that God is withholding this from you? You mean that, that, that God, God isn't giving you this other thing? In, in other words, the tempter tries to present God as one who does not know what is best for man. God's holding back on you. He doesn't want you to truly be happy. He doesn't want you to truly be satisfied. He doesn't want you to truly be fulfilled. And so when they begin to doubt God, then they disobey God, and they are plunged into sin and misery. And we have the destruction that we see today. Listen, nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. That is exactly what Satan does today. And so let's put it in, in the realm of, of, of lust. Sex is a gift from the creator for marriage. And so every sexual temptation is rooted in this lie that God is withholding something good from you. Every, every temptation is rooted in, in this, hey, in this image, in this, this video, in this uh, glance, in this relationship. There is, there is something that will satisfy you, that is good for you, that God is holding back from you, that you need. And it's a lie. If you believe God and you follow his plan, that leads to life. If you do not believe God, it leads to sexual morality. And, and so, so this whole thing begins in the heart. Lust begins with a heart problem. It's a heart that is not trusting or believing God. It's a heart that is adulterous. Let, let me unpack. There's so many different directions we could go. So let me, try, I'm trying to hit the high things here, okay? So let me unpack a statement I hear a lot, okay? So it's like, okay, pastor, I believe everything you just said. I believe that, that whenever, whenever a person lusts, whenever I lust after someone that's not my spouse, that that is sin, that I've, I've committed adultery in my heart, well, and, and I've heard this before. Well, if, if that's true, then I've already sinned. I'm, I'm, I've, already, I've already done it in my heart. I might as well commit the act. Have you heard anybody say that? Uh, I've heard people say that with anger even, you know? It's like, well, I, I'm already angry with them, so I might as well lash out. I might as well, you know, say what I want to say. Now listen, first of all, that statement can really only be made by someone who does not love or trust Jesus, Okay? So, so that statement, the, the statement that says, well, I've already done it in my mind, so I might as well act on it, that is a statement that really can only be made by an unbeliever. Now, I, I believe it's possible maybe for a believer to say that in frustration, but it can only be meant by an unbeliever. Because there's something appallingly wrong with a professing Christian who says, I realize I just sinned. I realize that, that I've broken God's commandments, and so I might as well keep sinning. 
I, I, I might as well pursue that more. I might as well act out on my sin. I might as well not just not only sin in my mind and my heart, but I might as well bring my body into, into it as well. I might as well bring somebody else into my sin. You see, that, that is not the mark of a believer. Because here's what the mark of a believer is. The mark of a believer is that you fight against your sin. That, that's the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is when you sin, conviction by the Holy Spirit grabs hold of you and you repent quickly. You, you flee from sin and you run to the cross and you battle to kill your sin, to put it to death. You battle to minimize the consequences of sin that are compounded the longer that you stay in it. The more steps you take toward adultery, toward the act of sexual immorality, the more that you damage yourself and others. You see, that's the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is not that he or she never falls, he or she never stumbles. That's not the mark of a believer. I mean, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 8, that if we say that we sin, or if we say that we have no sin, we lie, make, make, make God out to be a liar. That's not the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is that, well, I, I never sin. That's not the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is when I sin, I am immediately gripped by the Holy Spirit over it, and I fight. I fight to get out of it. And so, so the mark of a believer is, as soon as a believer finds himself falling on this line. Now, now let's, let's review. Why would he fall on this line? Unbelief, right? For, for a moment, he, he or she is believing that, that, that God is withholding something good, that what God has said don't do really is good. And so there's this momentary unbelief. Okay, but, but as soon as a believer hits the line, then the conviction of the Holy Spirit begins. And the mark of a believer is he repents. He or she repents. He gets off the line. Because the more you stay on the line, the more damage you begin to do to yourself, to your relationship with God, and to others. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 says something really Interesting, we don't have time to unpack it, but I'm just going to throw it, throw it out there. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, it talks about the uniqueness of sexual morality. It says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immor- the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, Paul, Paul says sexual morality is in a class by itself when you, when you talk about sin. Now, I, I, don't, I don't believe that he's saying, like, there's, there's grades of sin, you know, and so, you know, this is one grade, you know. I don't, I don't think he's saying that, but I think he's saying there's something unique about sexual morality because of the oneness of, of, of the one flesh union. In other words, because in marriage, God really does bring a husband and wife together to be, be one flesh, and so there's something unique about that that doesn't exist anywhere else, okay? So there's this one flesh union. And so sexual morality is messing with that. It is distorting that. And there's a lot at stake. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, so he, he, he says, you know, you've heard it say you should not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then verse 29, he says, if you're right, I cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you that you lose one of the members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. We should not let that go by without great seriousness. That, that Jesus immediately connects not fighting against this sin with hell. 
There should be a soberness there. I was uh, reading the end of Revelation with a guy yesterday. We've been reading through the book of Revelation in our study. And uh, these two verses caught my attention. Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then the next chapter, Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may not may enter the city by the gate. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and adulterers, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's serious. Not, not that you can't be forgiven of lust or sexual immorality or adultery. You can there, there, is, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ for them. But, hear me out, you cannot persist in them. You cannot live unrepentant lives in sexual morality, in lust, in adultery. To not fight, to not struggle against it is a mark of unbelief. And so quickly, what does it look like to fight against lust? What does that look like? So Jesus gives us this demonstration, I guess, in 29 and 30. If you're right, I cause you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of the members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Obviously, Jesus is not advocating physical mutilation as the answer to lust. Okay, I, I, Like, it's one of those deals where that's so obvious because... He's been teaching us, and he will continue to teach us all through the Gospel of Matthew and all through the rest of the Bible, that sin flows out of the heart, right? And so it doesn't matter if you only got one eye, you know? It's not like people with one eye, they sin half as much, you know? And people with one hand, they sin half as much, you know? Those people that are in a car accident, they don't have any hands, and they're blind, they don't sin at all. I, I mean, yeah, right? Like, like we, we get that's not what he's saying, Okay? So what is he saying? Well, what he's clearly saying is that you need to act immediately and decisively against the sin of lust. To stall, to be slow to confront, to allow lust to hide in the corners of your mind is to allow sin to gain momentum. Okay, what he's saying is act immediately, act radically. In Man Up a few years, I think it's been quite a few years ago, we had an illustration. We were covering this passage, and, and so I had Pastor Daniel. We set up a. We had two guys holding one of our round tables up like this, and and and, and I had Pastor Daniel. Uh, at that time, I don't even know if he was Pastor Daniel. I think it was that was been a long time ago. But I had him. I had him kind of start like right like three or four feet in front of the table, and I said, "Okay, Dan, I want you to I want you to walk toward that table, and I want you to stop right before you you you, you get to it." And so he did. Like he took one or two steps, and he stopped. Right. And then, and I knew, I picked him because I knew he'd be a good sport about this and actually do it. And then I backed him up way down the hallway and said, all right, I want you to run as hard as you can. And I think we had a little piece of tape, like a foot before the table. And I said, I want you to be at top speed, and I want you to stop right on that line. Well, you know what happened. Like he blew through the table and it was a big crash and all the guys laughed and, you know. But the point is this. Jesus is saying, if, if you get on this line of lust, and if you stay there, if you don't repent, if you don't fight, then, then you, you, the more momentum you gain, 
the more difficult it will be not to blow up your entire life. And I actually, not going to do it today, but I actually could give you testimony after testimony after testimony of folks that I thought were really good folks who I, I believe gained momentum on that line and then it just was too late. So act immediately, act decisively. Because the more, the longer you stay on that line, here's what's going to happen. You end up in sin, either lusting, fantasizing, or worse. And you come under conviction, and you're miserable, and you repent, and you confess your sin, you plead with the Lord to be close to Him again, and you can be forgiven. But then the more you repeat that cycle, the more you allow sin to go gain momentum, the more you... You continue in that sin. I, I think the more damage you do, you, you know, people start to feel fake. I've talked to Christians, and and when you have this habitual sin that's just beating you, man, you, you start to feel this disingenuousness about your own relationship with the Lord, and your repentance feels more. I mean, it's just this vis, vicious cycle. You, you're more, you're less effective in the work of the Lord. You're more distant from God. And what Jesus is saying is you can't let it have an inch. Guys, we, we got to fight immediately. You, you got to starve. You got to starve the, any kind of fuel in your life that leads to lust. Romans 13, 14, it's a great verse. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision. In other words, don't give it anything. Starve it. 1 Peter 2.11 says, the passions of your flesh will wage war against your soul. So, so act immediately, act decisively. Number two, there are things you're going to have to cut out of your life. So I, I think Jesus is being metaphorical when he says right eye, right hand. But, but I think what right eye and right hand represent is things that are valuable and useful. Things that maybe aren't wrong in themselves, but, but they're, they're scandalizo. That's the Greek word. I think it's where we get our word scandal. Scandalizo means they cause you to sin. They cause you to stumble. And, and so Jesus is saying, if there are things in your life, that patterns in your life, relationships in your life, entertainment that's in your life, and it, and it continues to bait you to be unbelieving and to lust, then you need to cut it off. You, you, it's, not, it's not worth you being distant from the Lord. It's not worth you being miserable in sin. It's not worth you being kept from the gospel. It's not worth you perishing in hell. It's not worth you living in habitual sin and showing yourself to be an unbeliever. So if there's a trigger, if there's something that's causing you to sin over and over and over, if there's something that's a gateway for sin in your life, whether it's a relationship or a recreation or a social circle or social media or an unwinding distraction, if it causes you to sin, you've got to eliminate it. That's what Jesus is saying. Cut that thing off. If it's your phone, cut it off. If it's your TV, cut it off. If it's a friendship, cut it off. Eliminate it. Heaven and hell is at stake. You're saying, whoa, 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 pastor, you just, you just said that if you're a true believer, no, no, I'm, I'm not changing my theology, but, I, but I'm just saying sometimes, here's what the church does that is really damaging. Sometimes we're like, well, I believe that once you're saved, then you're always saved, and so all those verses about hell, they don't apply to me. Hey, if you live on this line, they apply to you. 
right? You might just be fooling yourself. If you're living a life of unbelief, habitual, and you're not responding to the truth of God's word, then you should be frightened. Not that you're going to lose your salvation, but that maybe you never had it to begin with. Maybe you never had it to begin with. Number three, cultivate superior desires. If you've ever read John Piper, he's done great work on this. He's got this, this an acronym called Anthem that's fantastic. You can look it up online and just go to Desiring God, type in Anthem. But, but it's, 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 it's this idea. Last week we talked about anger. You know, how do you not be angry? Well, it's not effective to, when you're angry, to just yell at yourself not to be angry, right? just makes you more angry. In the same way, when, when you're, when you're lu- in lust, it, it's not effective for you just to yell at yourself, hey, stop lusting. Stop lusting after that. Stop lusting after the thing I'm now thinking about more, right? But what is effective is to move your mind toward something else, toward reconciliation in Christ, toward the cross, toward the beauty of the Scriptures, toward the promises of God, toward the work of God, to, to move your mind to superior things, to cultivate. See, if, 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 if the devil is eating your lunch on, hey, God is withholding from you, God, there's, other, there's better forbidden things out there, then probably part of the problem is, is you, you don't love the right things. You, you have not cultivated the beautiful things in your life. You, you don't love the gospel like you ought to. You don't love the cross like you ought to. You don't love the mission of God like you ought to. You, you're not engaged in, in strategic prayer for your family and your church and your friends and your city. You're not engaged in good works and gospel conversation. Engage your mind in the things of God. Finally, help each other. I think this is, this is one of the deals where we need help. James 5, 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power when it's working. I think sins of the heart like this one that can be hidden so easily are sins that we need to help one another with. Okay, I want to say a word to husbands and wives, okay? Now, it's my personal conviction that most of the time, it's better for maybe a guy to have another guy, a really close friend, somebody who will hold his feet to the fire to be his accountability partner. But I do think that, that conversation on this issue and prayer on this issue and strategy on this issue are really important in husband and wives. But, but it unravels so often and so easily because of one thing. And so there's things that I would like to say, but, but they just don't come across well from me. And then I'm already going to get hate mail over this, this sermon the next week. And so that will just intensify it. And so I'm going to let somebody else say it. So, Brian, do we have a clip? This is, uh, J- what's her name? Jam- Jamie, huh? Jackie Hill Perry. She's fantastic. She, this is just in her car. Question. She just tweeted How this. How often are you honest with your spouse about your lustful temptation? When it comes to men, I think it might be two reasons why they might be unwilling to share with their wives about their struggle. One, they like it. They enjoy entertaining the fact that other women want them or the ideas that pop up in their minds about what they could do with other women. That is a heart issue. Two, you women too insecure to take it. Every time this man want to let you in on what he's struggling with, you want to get in your feelings. So what you trying to say, you was thinking about another woman. And she was in your dreams? So you telling me I'm not worth dreaming about now? Girl, calm down. You should let the fact that he let you in on his heart give you security and the reassurance that he loves you. Letting our spouses in on our issues 
gives them the opportunity to hold us accountable and pray for us. And it uproots any opportunity for Satan to wreak havoc on our marriages through secrets. So be honest. This, uh, this gal, by the way, is, is fantastic. If, you, if you're not, she, she's got a, a YouTube channel, I think, and she's got a Twitter account. But um, she, I was listening to something. I was looking, I, I ran calling that across that clip, and I've, I've, I've heard her before a couple times. But she's got one on, ladies, she's got one on uh, what is a woman. And it's a spoken word. It's about four or five minutes. I listened to it probably seven times, partly because it's so poetic that I was just trying to get more and more from it. But, I mean, it, it drips with theology. It's maybe the best thing on biblical womanhood I've ever heard in my life. Uh, what is a woman? It, it, it's fantastic. It's a spoken word. But anyway, back, back to what she just said there. I, I, I have seen that over and over again. It has been a frustrating experience to me to, to walk with hundreds of couples through difficult things in their marriage and, and as soon as this thing comes up, so let, let me just say this. There's some wives that are fantastic. Like I've just marveled at their incredible strategic love for their husbands and, and their, their fight against sin, and they've done this awesome, okay? Other ladies have completely derailed the process, okay? Like completely. Like, like I, I'm like on the, I, I'm, I'm on the war, war path to help this guy battle this in his life. And as soon as the wife finds out, it's, it's completely about her now, you know? And it's, it's like, it's all on, the, you know, the, her and her and her. I, I know, ladies, this is a difficult thing to understand about men, okay? I understand that. But would you please just, just for a moment consider that there's like a thousand things we don't understand about women, Okay. I mean, like, so you got one thing. There's one thing you're just like, I don't understand that. Okay, there's like a thousand things that, you know, we don't, and we just survive, okay? Like, you just accept it and go on and survive it, you know? I mean, we just don't get it, and we try to try to navigate through that, okay? This is one of those deals where John Bloom wrote a great article on, on lust, and I think most women immediately think this is about my not being what I need to be. It has nothing to do with that, nothing. I could give you a thousand million illustrations of that. Hollywood, Hollywood, all right? Here's all the women that are supposedly the most beautiful women in the world, right? They get married, right? And it lasts, what, normally seven, six, eight days maybe, right? Right? Until, I mean, why, why is all the, if these are the most beautiful women in the world, then why are their husbands cheating on them? You know why? Because they don't have to do with that. Actually, lust has to do with coveting. Wanting, wanting, wanting things that are forbidden. Romans 7 says we want forbidden things. That's our, that's our sinful brokenness. You remember that story in the Old Testament where uh, uh, David's son Amnon has this infatuation with Tamar and he, and he ends up raping her? What happens immediately after that? He despises her. She tries, she tries, she's just, unbel- I can't even wrap my head around this, She's trying to somehow, she's such a virtuous woman, she's trying to somehow make this thing right. He didn't want anything to do with her. Why? Because it wasn't about that. It was about this deep brokenness in Amnon's soul. I think lust is about overindulgence, self-indulgence. Why, why do people overeat? You know? Why, why do we do that? Why, why is, you know... The ladies at Fifth Street, I complimented their cake. They gave me like a whole sheet of it, you know? And like, like why, why can't I just be like, hey, you know, one piece a day is fine, you know? Instead, I'm like, 
go home for lunch and check on the kids and eat a piece of cake, you know? <laughs> what Social media. Why, why don't you look at Facebook once a day? Honestly, there's not going to be anything new, right? Why, why do you go back and back and back? It's brokenness. It's trying to fill this hole that it can't fill. Power, discontent. Bottom line, it's sin. It's not, it's not trusting and treasuring Jesus. It is a sin problem. And we need to help each other not sin. I, man, I know it's a tough issue. I've tried to be as careful as I could today. Um, hopefully, tried anyway. Probably not perfectly, but I tried. But, but folks, we need to aggressively, church, we need to aggressively the next two weeks pursue right relationships in this area. We need to stand out as the people of God who are fundamentally different than the world particularly in marriage. We need to be that. Father, I ask you, God, to bring repentance this morning where there needs to be repentance. God, please bring hope, Father, to, to those maybe enslaved in um, lust or pornography or um, some other sexual sin. Father, we, we understand how, how enslaving those things are. Um, Father, I pray that you give freedom. God, that you bring freedom today. God, that there, there might be faith today. There might be a radical turning, a radical battling against that sin. That there might be freedom. God, I, I pray for marriages um, just in the way that they will hear this week and next week's passage out of the Scripture. God, I pray, Father, that you would build marriages at Lincoln that will be beautiful pictures of Jesus in the church. God, I pray that sin would not, would not unravel, that would not damage, would not attack that. I pray that you would give us strong defenses against that. Father, we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?